Geek Top 5, Season 5. I'm so happy you're here. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> this is so exciting. Geek Top 5. I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And we are back in the nick of time because the Earth is in danger. Again. Oh no! It's just one of those things, I guess. Uh, we're back with another episode. This time it's just the two of us in the studio again, and we have some dueling lists. Uh, we are looking at, I guess, the, the original impetus was, what, top five sci-fi battles for Earth? Is that a good way to put it? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I I had it under in my head as, like, the fate of the Earth was in question. It wasn't about conquering it. It was about the destruction in some form or the other of Earth. And Earth specifically. Not the universe, not the time stream, Earth. And, like, the other stuff could be collateral damage, but Earth was the target. And let's be clear, the reason we're doing that is because, I mean... You know, I mean, for obvious reasons, a lot of science fiction sort of has a, let's say, human-centric point of view. <laughs> and uh, somehow, it all, like, of all, you know, of all the planets and all the galaxies, <laughs> she had to walk into mine. No, of all the planets in all the galaxies, Earth, somehow the fate of everything always seems to hinge on Earth, doesn't it? Except for Star Wars. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah, mainly Star Wars. So maybe a couple others, but largely Star Wars. I mean, well, they don't they don't have an Earth is a short version. Whenever there is an Earth to endanger, Earth is it. And sometimes it can get kind of frustrating because it's sort of the it's sort of the go to stakes, you know? Oh, yeah. this guy's going to destroy the Earth. It's like, oh, that's original. Like, OK, I guess I care about this. But like as much as we like to criticize that kind of thing, there are actually some really cool battles for Earth. I gotta be honest, this was probably one of the hardest lists that we've done for me. Good heavens, and why? <laughs> I know, right? It seems like it's constantly in peril, so there should be a lot to choose from. And I just had a hard time researching and finding something that I actually cared about. I tend to, I think that once the stakes get to like Earth levels, it's hard for me to care that much about it. It's like, I, I deal better with smaller scale stuff, more intimate stakes. And and if the whole planet is on the line, the whole survival of our species, it's harder for me to view it at that level. It just becomes like a neat space battle or whatever. Yeah, it's just sort I of humdrum, right? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> I was able to find five, but uh, they may be a little more unusual. The, the first couple are not, but the higher ones might be a little more unusual. Yeah, I definitely went at it just from the ones that like, I found the most exciting. So it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see how our lists bounce <laughs> off each other. I'm guessing this isn't going to be, like a lot of ours lately, this won't be one where we are arguing over position, but rather we just have like, oh, I didn't even think of that kind of reactions. Yeah, um, yeah it, I'm also a little, you, you may get heated at some of my choices. <laughs> Uh, we'll see. Okay, I will uh, <laughs> see, and that's it. Like now, it's sabotage, right? Because it's now like, well, he like you said that just so I wouldn't get heated, just to prove you wrong. But maybe I should be heated. It's, <laughs> it's all the mind games before the lists get started. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. Yeah. All right. Well, enough of that. Uh, look, what we're saying is it happens a lot, but sometimes it's cool. I think so. Why don't we get started, Graham? Why don't you hit us with your number five? 
My number five is Independence Day, the film <laughs> from 1996, Six. was it? It is yeah. 1996, and I know that because I double-checked it, because it is also on my list. I kind of thought it would be. Yeah. I had a feeling. So, in traditional Geek Top 5 manner, when we have dueling lists, we are going to uh, put a pin in it, and we're going to get back to it when it reappears on the list, and then we can go into detail and figure out uh, why it was in different slots on our different lists. I kind of, uh, for a lot of reasons, hope it comes up soon. But uh, yeah, let's uh, <laughs> let's see what your number five is. My number five uh, is I picked I picked BattleTech. I picked the Battle of Terra and the Ill Clan. And yes, one of the major reasons is that number five is because I know nobody cares but me. <laughs> Wow, okay, so this one is going to require a lot of explaining, because I think if you do know anything about the uh, Battletech series, you know that Earth isn't a main factor, it's like no one, no one. I, I, they're all humans, and it takes place in, in the Milky Way galaxy, but Earth isn't the focal point of it, most of the stories well it's it, it's in and out that's what we're okay let me let's, let me just roll it out i will make it as brief as possible and then we can get into the meat um a so BattleTech has been around since the like early to mid 80s and in 1989 not too long after the like it was it'd been around for a little bit but in 1989 they announced a new set of factions introduced to the mythology called the clans. Uh the clans. So I know a lot of our audience is pretty Star Trek friendly so to give you the short short version of the clans picture this as a what if Imagine if in Star Trek, if all the different Federation planets declared war on each other and Starfleet is caught in the middle. And Starfleet says, oh, hey, we don't want any part of this. And all the Starfleet ships just leave and leave the Federation to its own war. Hundreds of years pass and this navy living alone in space sort of devolves into a tribal militocracy and then comes back and says, hey, you know what? We should be in charge. That's the quick rundown of what the clans are. Uh, they got introduced, in, uh, in, I said 1989, it was in a novel called Lethal Heritage by Michael Stackpole, classic genre fiction author. Um, also wrote a lot of really good Star Wars books. And the clans are essentially coming back to our galaxy, and their plan is to reconquer Terra, the, the sci-fi name for Earth, uh, basically to prove which of them is the best. And now, 32 years after that publication, uh, December 31st of 2020, they released the latest Battletech novel where the clans finally hit Earth after all this time. Wow. Um, and I mean, hundreds of years like in the, the fiction, but it, like 32 years of real life. I'm always wondering, when are we going to get here? And they finally got there. Okay, so before you continue with that, what is the importance, like, what what has happened to Earth in the meantime? Like, what does Earth mean to the inner sphere? It's essentially, it's like whoever controls Earth controls the galaxy, that kind of thing. Like, it's still oh, the okay. best planet. It's still the best planet. And, like, the entire setting, like, man, go back and check out our Battletech episode if you're interested. But the short form is a lot of the fiction in Battletech is sort of patterned on the fall of Rome and the following succession wars. So the Roman Empire at its height was, like, the greatest civilization in ancient history. So the Battletech version of that was the Star League, which is their version of the Federation. Right? You know, the greatest civilization that ever was that was based on Earth. 
So now these clans, who are the descendants of the Star League Defense Force, have come back, and they see it as their mission to recapture Earth and sort of rebirth that great civilization and end these hundred years of war that have happened in the in the meantime. Okay. So... You end up with it's the, the, this the book is okay. Uh, there's definitely more than one reason why this is my number five on the list. Uh, but you have you have a, t- a three way fight between the the Republic of the Sphere, who are sort of our failing good guys, and two clans, Clan Wolf and Jade Falcon, the coolest ones, obviously, <laughs> all v- fighting for control of the planet. And I mean, in terms of the fiction. It's it's cool. It's a you know, it's thirty years of writing have built up to this and like a lot of the characters over the course of the story are sort of remarking, like, holy crap, like this is finally happening. Like this like this is it. Everything this is everything for so long. But another reason I really like this is because there's a huge meta narrative wrapped around this. Um Battletech underwent a reinvention in two thousand two where they jumped the timeline forward about 60 years and rebranded it as Mech Warrior Dark Age. And what was came before sort of became classic Battletech. So sort of like Battletech became Kirk series and Mech Warrior Dark Age was the next generation. Except in this equivalent of that, everybody hated Dark Age for lots of reasons that we don't have to go into. Um, but the the highlight of the Dark Age was they changed a lot of the factions, they threw out a lot of characters and a lot of storylines, and they, they introduced this new faction, the Republic of the Sphere, and it was never very popular. And very recently, there was sort of some rights issues that got tossed up, and they said, okay, enough of this Dark Age stuff, because classic Battletech has always been more popular. So... There is a lot of fun in the way this book is written, where the clans are very like, yes, we're coming to destroy the Republic of the Sphere. We hate it. We hate everything about it. It was a really poor decision. And they go in and basically kill all the characters from the Courier Dark Age. <laughs> so it's, it's, I, I, I mean, as a Battletech fan, it's you know it's it's like watching Picard fight the Borg. Like it's been building up all this time. It's fun to have that sort of thing fulfilled, but it's also really fun from the meta narrative perspective, where it's the people writing the franchise now are like, okay, yes, this was a mistake. We are literally writing it into our universe that we're bringing back our cool villains from thirty years ago, and they are blowing up every literally blowing up everything you didn't like about our franchise, and we're going to start changing it back to be more like what it was that's uh, that's deep um that will will so how does earth fare in this it uh, I mean, the 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 republic of the sphere like they they go down first and the final battle is fought between the clans between clan wolf and jade falcon hilariously to me the final battle is fought between ottawa and winnipeg which is <laughs> <laughs> right which, which is great because there's all these strategic maps of them caught between like lake superior and james bay the the seventh commando will go on like a secret mission and they pass through sudbury <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing what uh do you know any behind the scenes stuff like why was canada chosen of all places because canada kicks ass <laughs> okay obviously I'm not used to that 
<laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun, right? No, like a, a lot of the like a lot of the story is in Australia, in Asia, um, in Geneva is a big battle site, and then just in Ontario for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, in, in the lore, they choose it because they're clans and they're all honorable combat, and this is a good space to like you know, there's no civilians in the way, like it's easy to evacuate these little cities and stuff. <laughs> but it's it's hilarious and because all this novel is meant to supplement the tabletop game you know they're always like the big strategic maps of here's what the battlefield looked like and here's how they move so you can recreate it when you're playing the game with your friends and they're always set on like weird alien swamps or you know rocky sort of california desert like worlds like the, the thing that star trek said this is what alien planets look like Right. And now it's just like no, it's 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 the suburbs outside of Winnipeg. <laughs> it's, it's delightful. Um in any case, no need to keep uh, harping on it. I know I like BattleTech is not a popular IP. It should be so much more, but I know it's not and I talk about it too much. It's number 5 on my list because 30 years of build up to get to this fight is it's super cool to get that payoff and also the fun of seeing the transition to it is a cool double whammy. All right. Well, I gotta, I gotta ask: Was the Earth ever in danger of being destroyed in this, or is it just about taking charge of the planet? The so the God, I mean, stop me because this is going to go on for a while. The clans <laughs> as a militocracy, like their culture, like our culture, doesn't come like is not tolerated. They have a rigid caste system. They're all genetically engineered. Like, they don't even allow for people... Like, if you're born sort of the old-fashioned way, like, you're considered a lower class and you're not really permitted. Like basically, you're a reman. Right. The So, are they actually cracking the mantle of the planet? Well, actually, there was kind of a thing about that. Um, things get a little tense with some of the bad, bad guys. But what's happening, like, what it's about is, like, the erasure of humanity... As we are, like all the things that we would consider are like make us human, all that's going to get thrown out the window. Okay. So I see what you're saying in terms of like, like, is it a Death Star level threat? Maybe not, but in a way, it's worse. Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on to our number fours. Uh, my number four is the uh, 2009 Star Trek movie directed by J.J. Abrams. Ah, I don't have that one on my list. Okay. So this movie begins with a, a, something that takes place in the, the present day of Star Trek, which is the end of The Next Generation, the end of Voyager, I guess. It's the, the furthest forward that we'd been at that point. And a Romulan, the, the planet of Romulus blows up. A Romulan ship goes uh, through this wormhole, ends up back in time, and uh, kills James Kirk's father, and then eventually destroys Vulcan using a powerful... Uh, MacGuffin that they have on the ship, this red matter that can create black holes, and they destroy Vulcan. And then basically the rest of the movie is them making their way to Earth to destroy Earth, just because that that becomes their their goal. They destroy Vulcan because they're pissed off at Spock because Spock said he would save Romulus and he does not, and so they're they're this is their revenge, and they make Spock watch it happen. Uh, and then they go to attack Earth, and Kirk and Spock have to learn to work together in order to to stop that from happening. They steal the red matter, and they they blow up that the the enemy Romulan ship, and everyone lives happily ever after. But that is it's a pretty big scene, a pretty big battle between two ships, and the entire planet is at stake. And we know it's really in genuine danger because we'd just seen Vulcan get destroyed before, 
Uh, it's number four on my list because it satisfies all the requirements. I enjoy the movie. Ultimately, the things I like about that movie aren't this battle, but it is a cool battle. And when the, the black hole is created that destroys the Romulan ship and Nero, the evil Romulan on board, our, all our heroes are in danger and they they miraculously survive through sci-fi magic. Uh, again, I'm, I don't feel like I'm doing a great job selling it. The stakes to me don't mean as much like it's it's everything around it that matters the friendship of Kirk and Spock them learning to work together the crew saving the day but like I said when it comes to the world destroying stuff it's so far out of my scope of being able to comprehend or handle it doesn't quite land for me but it's still a cool scene a cool fight and one of the few times in Star Trek where Earth is genuinely at risk of being destroyed. I, I mean, that last part, I really got to raise a well, actually, with you. I mean, <laughs> like, Star Trek, the motion picture, and uh, Star Trek But 4, that's not a battle. It's not a battle, but it's, Neither a, is four. Gi- it's a giant alien thing that's coming to Earth. Like, yeah. Uh, and, and it's, you, like, first contact in its way. And four is, uh, like, drowning the Earth in its own oceans. I'd say that's pretty good. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And I do think those are great movies. But they don't have traditional battles so i didn't i discounted them and and same thing with um with first contact it's a big fight over earth but it's not going to be destroyed it's the, the borg are going to to earth to take it over and to Ooh. assimilate all of humanity i don't know about that but we uh, we may come back to that oh <laughs> i i discounted it out of hand because i was like earth is gonna survive Humanity will survive in some form, so I I couldn't count it. And then okay, my... we got it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we'll come back to first contact because that's crazy talk, and you're crazy for saying it. Well, this is why it was so uh, hard for me. But regards to this movie, anyway, regards to the JJ Star Trek, which yes. amazing. I feel like how many times we've like had to describe what this movie is on this podcast. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I certainly I agree with you. Like, I was. I mean, if I'm worried about anything in that movie, I'm worried about like the destruction of the Enterprise um, a lot more than I am about the. Destruction of earth like yeah that's always there in the background i guess and i'm not even 100 percent clear on why like, like he, he blew up vulcan because the vulcans right like he blames <laughs> them for not saving romulus fast enough i guess and then he is gonna blow up earth because i guess if you blow up vulcan like you might as well it's like a twofer he's like i, I mean trying to think about a from his perspective, I'm like, well, I got to keep this crew doing something. We're fueled by hatred and revenge. Uh, Captain Kirk is here. He's been a bit of a pain. Why don't we destroy Earth? Like yeah, that. Yes. And even that isn't really articulated in the movie, I don't think. Like, not certainly not in a way that makes his motivations memorable to us. Because we don't remember why he wants to destroy Earth. It just seems like the thing to do for him. <laughs> <laughs> I just like like God forbid somebody wants to destroy Andor, you know? <laughs> like jeez. Okay, but uh, yeah, all right. I mean, yes, cool movie, cool battle scenes. The the Yeah. And Earth is directly threatened by dialogue, so there's that. So it's it does technically <laughs> count. He they they get there, they drop their mining thing into San Francisco Bay. It it, it gets pretty close. Like there's there's real uh, stakes there. It's not like... Uh, oh, yeah, it, it is there for sure. It's, it's just such a weird like subplot to what the rest of the movie is about. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. But like I said, I really struggled with this one, and, and <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really, you know... 
You were so enthusiastic with the idea. (laughs) (laughs) I was, because I thought it would be easy. And then when I actually started thinking about it, I really had a hard time. Oof. Okay. All right. (laughs) My point is, it's a. I, I do enjoy the movie a lot. It is memorable. I I like the fight scenes. I like the action scenes in it. Um, sometimes the motivations are a little hazy, but it is a battle over the destruction of the Earth where I actually, you know, cared about the outcome. So that's why I made my list. Fair. Accepted. Okay, what is your number four? My number four. You're not ready for this. (laughs) My number four is Babylon 5, the Battle of the Line in the Earthman-Bari War. Man, okay, well, before you get into this, uh, this would never enter my list because I, oh, I'm going to lose some fans over this one. Uh, I cannot stand Babylon 5. I watched four seasons of it, and I, I never ended up liking it. There were some characters I liked, but whew! This is episode 121, and I think this is the first time we have ever mentioned Babylon 5 on this podcast. Look, 100%, Babylon 5 is the poor man's DS9. Just, like, in you so are, many We are ways. opening up a can of worms here. I, I'm feeling sick to my stomach for the, the angry letters we're going to get. I welcome them. I welcome you, Babylon 5, Fiveians, whatever. I, I welcome you from Earth Force. Babbleheads, that's good. That's good. I, I, I welcome you, Babbleheads, because like I did watch the whole thing and a couple of the TV movies, and there are definitely like individual episodes here and there that I like, and I can see the overall arc of things that like that that was most like, like well that, that there are cool points, points of light in the darkness. But yeah, on the whole, Babylon Five, not an amazing show, but five seasons of of television. Um, but I really like I really like this setup because we open ten years nine or ten after the Battle of the Line, the Battle for Earth, and it plays out over most of this series as a big mystery, and I really like it. The we find out over the course of this series that what's going on is that we ran into this alien species, the Mimbari. And uh, there was a first contact misunderstanding, totally our fault, which uh, is kind of refreshing. Uh, We accidentally sort of jumped the gun and shot at them and killed their king, basically, uh, who is incredibly unfortunately named Dukat. Uh, Yeah, that's a Deep Space Nine uh, thing for us, for uh, for For, our uh, non-Trekkies. Yeah, the DS9 Dukat's a lot better. But anyway... um, the Mimbari are pissed and they launch a holy war and they like basically they defeat the humans and we're like begging for mercy and offering to surrender and they're ignoring it because they're ticked and they keep coming and they keep coming and there's this last like well we're like everyone who has a ship leave earth everyone who has a ship with guns just like try to buy time. And that's the Battle of the Line. It's this really cool setup. And the Minbari show up, and of course, they're completely unstoppable, and they cut their way through everything, and they settle into orbit over Earth, and they surrender. Hmm. And now, ten years since then have passed. And we're now, like, now it's Babylon 5. It's like a, like a you know, inter, I don't want to say international, but like interplanetary space station. Everyone's signing on. It's a place for species to get. And we're, we're kind of on okay terms with the Minbari now, but they've never explained what happened. And 
it turns into this big mystery. What is going on? Like, is there, and then of course, there's more happening behind the scenes all the time. There are humans who don't like this. There are Minbari who don't like this. But there's also some like secret cabal, and it seems like our characters that we know, like we're really familiar with, are directly involved, but not telling us. And it sets up this really cool sort of like the, the what is going on with that is of course is put is part of a much larger arc that we find out over the five years and like you said a lot of it's not great um a lot of the cast of babylon 5 don't make it past the first season they tend to get swapped out and it gets a little better in two and three uh but it's a i find that that is such i mean okay it's dramatic we see bits and pieces of it in flashback, and eventually there's a made-for-TV movie, which is okay. But it's a dramatic. It's very Star Wars. There's lots of ships flying around and capital ships with laser guns, and you know, look out, Porkins! Ah, um, but it's also the mystery that it establishes. And it's I mean, as cool as the battle scene is, because battles are great. It's what was that all about? What is going on? And you you find out, I think, in season four, they pretty much tie up all those loose ends. But it's it's a really cool ride, and I like that the battle isn't the climax. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's the inciting incident that sets off a bunch of other stuff. I thought that was really unique, um, and I just, it's, and it, it was really interesting. So, so yes, I know, I, I, I am with you. I'm not a huge Babylon 5 fan, but that is something really cool that I feel like I haven't really, like, I, a lot of others, again, a lot of other sci-fi things use always going to blow up Earth as the climax, as the, like, free stakes. This one did it something totally different, and I can respect that. All right, all right. I, I With a lot of stuff in Babylon 5, I like the idea better than the execution, and I feel like I this might be another one of those things. I'll be honest, it's been a while since I watched the show. I have no memory of that storyline, uh, so I can't I can't really help... <laughs> flesh this out <laughs> all i know is that it's it did improve vastly after season one and there are great characters on the show and they are not served well in some instances by the writing and in some instances by the acting but i i am impressed with the overarching idea of it and and the what j michael straczynski the character and showrunner and driving force behind this whole thing was able to accomplish. So I, I will leave it at that, and hopefully we won't get too many pitchforks. Well, yeah, I'm looking at this like as a... Like, this was a cool... Again, like Battletech. No, I don't think a lot of people listening to this are going to know about it. I mean, Babylon 5 has a fan base, but not a not a huge one, not a Trek-sized one. So I'm trying to take this as a... Like, is this a recommendation to go watch Babylon 5 and find out for yourself? And I think the answer is maybe... Oh boy! Um, it would have been great a year ago because it's the pandemic, and hey, we've got nothing but time, right? Yeah, um, and at least for our American friends, I believe the whole thing is remastered and available on HBO Max. Uh, but it's—I mean, maybe with an episode guide to filter out the crap and just get the really important stuff. But like, there's a lot of heart to that show, like, like the relationship between Londo and the, well, hey, like all the Centauri and the Narn is is just a hilarious thing going back and forth and. I just, there's so many characters and so many moments and so much fun stuff from it. It's just that it's, I, boy, did it suffer from its visual effects budget? I'll tell you that much. DS9 definitely kicked it in the teeth there. And it what just, I am, what I am excited and also terrified uh, about 
with you putting this on your list, is that we're going to get a Babylon Top 5 suggestion, and I'm going to have to go back and watch a bunch of Babylon 5 and research <laughs> for it. <laughs> Listen, if you're out there and you've got a Babylon 5 Top 5, like it writes itself. <laughs> uh, I, top 5 Babylons. There you go. I mean, I think we only see two of them in the actual show. But <laughs> anyway... Uh, would love to hear from you if you're into it, and if you're just you, you want a little extra something on your sci-fi plate. It's uh, it uh, it's it's not awesome, but it's not. I mean, a lot of it isn't terrible. <laughs> the best endorsement I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm trying to be honest. Anyway, that's my number four. Okay, uh, so we'll jump over to my number three, and this is the first one on my list, and, and maybe the only one where I think you may. <laughs> Uh, not be thrilled with its inclusion. It's a Deep Space Nine episode. This is Our Man Bashir. Yeah, that's a stretch. <laughs> At best. So, that the, is... So, first off, the, the Earth <laughs> in question... Uh, okay, no, you go first. You go first. <laughs> oh, boy. So, this is the, uh, as appropriate to our, our most recent episode, it is a James Bond parody episode. Um, our hero, Dr. Bashir, is on the holodeck reliving a basically James Bond movie where he gets to play the part of James Bond and be a secret agent in the 1960s. Uh, so much so that the, the Broccoli family, the people behind the James Bond movies, uh, we're not too thrilled with it, and what was probably going to become a recurring bit on the show got completely eliminated after this episode. Uh, anyway, the they he's he's on the holodeck. Uh, Garrick, his Cardassian actual spy friend, joins him to enjoy the fun. A transporter accident ensues, as it often does, and most of the main crew of Deep Space Nine ends up getting sort of put into the holodeck program. They take over the roles of some of the other characters, but they act like the characters in the holodeck program. And the evil villain of this is Dr. Hippocrates Noah, played by Captain Sisko, who is played by Avery Brooks. And his evil plan in this is to fire lasers and shrink the surface of the Earth, which will raise water levels, uh, killing everyone except for people on the highest mountains. And... Uh, over the course of the episode, uh, Bashir is trying to keep the story going so that the engineers have a chance to save everyone and get everyone out of the holodeck and back into their real bodies and their real minds. And uh, Garrick and, and Bashir are, because as always happens with holodeck episodes, the safeties are off. So that everyone's in real peril. And uh, Bashir wants to make sure everyone stays alive just in case if they die in the program, they might die in real life. Garrick is like, our lives are more important. And there's a real tussle, a battle of wills between them. What ends up happening is Bashir flips the script on the program and activates the, the weapon and uh, destroys the Earth. He's he, they're in in the holodeck. They're at the top of Mount Everest, so they survive, and all the people whose holo holograms are there are still alive. But uh, the Earth in this holodeck program is destroyed. So it's one where it's a battle for the Earth, where the Earth loses. Okay. <laughs> so first off, uh -huh. so the Earth is like. The Earth that's in danger in this scenario is false. It's a hologram. It's a storybook. Um, at hey, no tell that to the holograms. At no point do we even actually see this happening. 
right? The like the there's the, screens. It's there's displays. We yeah, we see a, a very Bond villain esque display, and it fills up to indicates that the oceans have now drowned the Earth. Um, and there's not, and the battle of wills is is tough. That's that's tough because it's not like. The battle of wills ends where they both agree, yes, let's destroy the earth. So is that really a battle? This uh That's a good point. Well, it's a battle up until then. He's trying to defeat Hippocrates Noah. Hippocrates Noah captures them with uh, his trusty assistant du Duchamp, played by Worf or Michael Dorn, and uh, they're strapped to the laser. It's like all, all got all the the classic Bond tropes. It's got all the yeah, all the classic Bond stuff, but like none of it is really happening. Like the actual stakes in that episode are that like it's one of those if you die in the holodeck, you die in real life things. Yeah, that that's happening. Like the the Earth is never actually in any danger. Well, uh, unearth is <laughs> <laughs> is a simulation the same as reality? Now we're getting into now we're tell that to the doctor, right? The doctor on Voyager. You you, you want to tell him that holograms aren't real? Yeah, <laughs> like in that specific example, absolutely. <laughs> oh well, I don't know. I don't think he'd like that. Yeah. Um oof. It, uh, I uh I mean if if you were having this much trouble with the list you could have let me know we could have done something else. <laughs> no, I I do like this thing. As I like as far as uh, I I like the twist on it. And and you know, I was thinking as I was doing this uh, some of the plot um, is very reminiscent of The Spy Who Loves Me, where the the webbed-fingered man who's the the villain of that one wants to to drown the earth and and bond has to stop him from doing that but that's the actual earth like his plan is bond villains version of earth but that's still earth like in deep space nine there is a version of earth that's an actual earth and that (laughs) and this episode has nothing to do with that earth that's fair that's fair like the breen attack earth at one point (laughs) in season seven i think and you get get that shot of san francisco bay all on fire and stuff i knew this would be a problem yeah, yeah, you did. <laughs> you went ahead with it anyway. Like, I just, I, I really like the episode. I like the fact that it flips the script on episode. the... If I said best Star Trek James Bond parody episode... <laughs> There's only like two to choose from. But still, this would probably be the best one. <laughs> okay, I get it. I get it. I understand why you're upset. I, I don't want to keep fighting about it. I yeah, just think yeah. we'll agree to disagree peacefully. <laughs> I think it's a it's a fun episode. I think it flips the script on a lot of these movies, like a, a villain wanting to destroy the Earth, especially a supervillain like Doctor Hippocrates Noah. It's kind of played out at this point, and to have his plan actually succeed in this, and having him not really know what to do with winning because his character isn't supposed to win, it's just it's a fun episode, and I. I think that's what I was looking for uh, here and why it stood out to me because it's so often when the world is at stake, you know, it's going to win. Like the, the world will survive in all these bond movies when the world's in danger, bond is going to win whenever it's something like that. Our heroes will, will triumph. And this flips that on uh, its head in a way that I wasn't expecting, even knowing it was all holograms. And I enjoyed it. I really just enjoyed it. And that's why it made the list for me. Did you ever have that friend growing up that, like, you'd all be sitting around, you'd be talking about your favorite television shows, and they'd lean in and go, you know what my favorite thing is to watch? 
it's the sunset because I go outside. <laughs> That's what you're doing. <laughs> I, uh, look, I I told you I struggled. All right, what's your number three? All right, that's fair. Now you get a chance to yell at me because my number three is Star Trek First Contact. All right, well, like I said, the world's never in danger. Anyway, the summarize it for us. 1996. Uh, the year arguably, of worlds getting destroyed, apparently. Yeah, arguably the best Star Trek movie, although Undiscovered Country, I think, also has a very strong shot at the, at the gold there. Um, the it's I think sort Rathacon of a con is is up there too. I mean, come on, Rathacon is up there. Yeah, I I I think Rathacon has the like might have the sil be fighting for the silver wow. uh, between undiscovered country and first contact for like a, whichever one doesn't get the gold, they would be fighting con. That's a whole other podcast. We could do that for hours. First Contact, it's sort of the follow-up to Best of Both Worlds, a legendary two-parter where Picard is assimilated by the Borg and becomes the villain Locutus. Um, the Borg are back, baby, and uh, this time they're bigger than ever. There's a, the, there's a brief introductions. We get to see the new Enterprise. Very good. They come back. They win the space battle against the Borg, um, but a Borg sphere, like a little Borg, like their version of an escape pod kind of goes back in time. They have a backup plan. It can't blow up the Earth right now, and we'll go back in time and blow it up when it's vulnerable, specifically the day before Earth makes first contact with aliens, which is a, a bit of a stretch, but okay, I can see that. They want to stop the Federation from starting. Uh, the Enterprise travels back in time, and uh, there's and hijinks ensue, but they manage to defeat the Borg and kill the, the Borg Queen and save the Earth. So there's two layers to this. Uh, now, I mean, the, the main thrust that we're going to be arguing over is I would argue that this entire movie is a battle to save the Earth, and I would consider the Borg assimilated Earth, like, I would I would call that more than conquered. The, like, when they're caught in the time stream, so they can see the changes to the timeline happening around them, but it hasn't affected them yet, like, you get that cool shot of Earth as, like, a metallic sphere, and, data, and there's a very ominous, sweet music as data scans at your population, nine billion, all Borg. Yes, I will concede that that is not ideal, but the Earth is alive <laughs> in some form. It's still the Earth, and and I just and and I saw it as like a not ideal continuation of its existence, and so I couldn't put it on my list based on I how know, I read the topic. Head the heading. whole the whole concept of the Borg is that they they take like well i mean really what it is it's they take away your individuality and your freedom because they they pump you full of machine guts and they like connect you to the hive mind and you don't think for yourself anymore and that is destroying a person and doing that to an entire planet i'd say is destroying the entire planet and star trek spends a lot of time right like that's all hue or we find out though oh actually a person can come back from this and maybe they can be a person again and realizing that is why he doesn't release the whatever it is, the fractal geometry virus. But because when he's a Bo when Hugh is a Borg, when they're looking at them as Borg, they don't count as people anymore. They don't count as being alive. Like they we in the audience and they as the cast members, crew members, do not acknowledge the Borg as like living lives. That like that that is they're plugged into a machine, they don't get to think for themselves. That's like that's bad enough to be considered destroyed in my book. 
you make a strong argument, and, uh, but, you know, maybe if we <laughs> argued this before I made my list, I would have, uh, I, I would have been swayed, but nice. based on my reading of the, the thing, I couldn't justify in my head that it was, uh, that the Earth was destroyed in that, or, or a threat of destruction, and, uh, and and that actually took quite a few things up my list. My my reading of the the rules. Yeah, I mean, so. you heard it here first, folks. Graham totally okay with assimilation. That's just <laughs> another form. You'll be fine. Let's all sign up. Nanoprobes in the arm. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> I just think it's like I don't know. It's like I, uh, I anything I could say is going to get me in trouble. So I'm just not going to say it. I, look, I mean, what's going to happen is we're going to like we're going to have like you know you're, like, you've got Star Trek JJ on your list, I've got First Contact on my list, and they'll cancel each other out. That's like you know, it's dueling go. lists. It's a duel, um, but I would call that a bad enough consequences to be you know to be counted destroyed, and that like every second of what's happening in that movie, uh, with some exception, is dedicated to saving the Earth. Yeah, uh, like both. I mean, the space battle is hella cool, but it's it's pretty short. Like it's it's actually a little bit disappointing. I understand. I'm sure that just those few minutes of space battle ran up the VFX budget way too much. Um, but all the other stuff that's happening, like the holdout movie, the action thriller part of the movie, that's the Borg slowly taking over the Enterprise deck by deck. And all this sort of commando stuff, the like coming out of the vents, and they've taken every deck from twenty four to sixteen. No, oh, we can't stop them. It's like we're firing blanks. Like all that is a constant tension. Of it's, it's like this is it. Like the people we're looking at on camera right now are all that stand between there being an Earth and there not being one. Yeah, I I love that movie, and I I like it a lot more than than uh, the Star Trek movie. I like it more than, than the Deep Space Nine episode that's also on my list. But I just it to me, it's like you know, it's another culture, and they're they they we may not uh, our culture may not be able to embrace their culture, but their culture is the one that wins out aggressively and not politely and not you know in a a, a good way but it is still earth at the end of the day and uh humanity still exists in some form so i couldn't i couldn't in good conscience put it on the list some form like that's <laughs> that is broad and that i mean does it count as a culture that you're just like a drone like an insect yeah i think it, i mean like, what is the yeah, technical definition of a culture all right we're gonna have to get an anthropologist or something on here to to help us with this one I don't think we're equipped to answer that question. The arts and other manifestations of human intellectual achievement regarded collectively. So, okay, that's already a little speciesist, but, I mean, <laughs> presumably that definition gets updated in the 24th century. Yes, yeah. Once we, well, I mean, hell, it probably gets updated in the 21st century once we meet the Vulcans. Oh, there you go. If only, right? Yeah. Uh, the other one I've got is the customs, arts, social institutions, and achievements of a particular nation, people, or other social group. That one's better. Yeah, and I think uh, applies to the Borg. What, what, you know, but other than what the customs arts. do they have? They, they don't have customs. <laughs> they don't have arts. They don't have social institutions. They don't really have achievements unless you count more assimilation. Listen, I uh, I think we'd have to get a definition of customs, and with, at that point, we're just going to spend the rest of the episode trying to define what a Borg culture is, and I would be uh, well, because there is no Borg culture. Like well, I argue that there is one, and it may not. Yeah, but you're totally wrong. 
<laughs> it may not neatly fit into the box that Google, oh man, I want to swear, that Google put together for the definition of culture, but the Borg does have a culture. Otherwise, what are they? They're machines. They're drones. They're cyborgs. And they do have, especially once you introduce the queen, there is an intellectual force behind it. And even without the queen, there are, is a guiding force behind them. Like, there, there is a reason they're going to do the things that they're going to do. And while I agree, they don't seem, as far as we see on screen, to have any sort of arts, they do have mm, a, a form of morality, a form of ethics, and it may not be... Dude, I think there's actually a line that morality is irrelevant or ethics are irrelevant. There's no, like, like, what, what would the Borg not do due to their morals or ethics? Like, what would they, where would they draw the line? Is it like vaccinations? Is it like, (laughs) Jesus. I know Uh, that's a big one right now. Right. Uh, I, I, it's not necessarily what they won't do, but it's the, the idea that they're they're not going to do things to each other, that uh, everything that they're doing is for the betterment of Borg kind, right? Like, they're trying to make, the Borg as good as the Borg can possibly be, and they're going to assimilate other cultures and and personalities and everything into their own culture. They're going to destroy all these other cultures because they don't think they're worthy. They're going to take the best parts of them and make them part of the Borg identity, but it's always about self-improvement, and so their ethics and morality are like, everything's cool so long as it makes us better. I disagree, but I can tell we've hit a wall, and I guess this isn't the podcast where we argue about if the Borg Man, are a real I, culture or not. That's gonna, so. That is the, what we're going to have to do for a geek deep dive. We haven't done one of those in a while, but man, I don't think we've disagreed this uh, uh, loudly about anything I, in a while. I, I am shocked to discover that you are like, <laughs> kind of okay with the Borg, actually. I'm not okay with them. I would fight them to the nail should they come to try and assimilate me, but... But I would defend to death their right to express their culture. As they, as they, really? <laughs> yes, yes. I think they, they, they're a species, just like any other. There's, there's Graham there's Beckstead, much... Borg apologists. All right. <laughs> I just understand what they're trying to do. I don't agree with their methods, but I understand why they're doing it. So that's my number three. <laughs> Star Trek First Contact. Um, sounds oh, like our Star no. Treks are canceling each other out. We'll just have to. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of stuff's getting canceled out here. Yeah, hmm. <laughs> All right. My number two is uh, it doesn't fit quite as neatly with the sci-fi angle of this, but it's the Kevin Smith movie Dogma. Ooh, yeah, okay. I mean, you're right. I would fight you that that's not sci-fi, but... Uh... Well, I guess it depends on on uh, like what your interpretations your, the of theology. Of <laughs> yeah, or and and you know, I, again, I don't want to get in trouble with religious groups or whatever, but there there is an element of fantasy and sci-fi in in religious mythology if you look at it from an outsider perspective. Yeah. And, All right, hit me with a uh, hit me with dogma. Okay, so the the broad strokes, and this isn't always uh, revealed. This isn't revealed until later in the movie. But there is a demon who's on Earth, whose name is Azriel, played by Jason Lee, and he really does not like being a demon. He doesn't like living in hell. And as far as he's concerned, anything is better than that, including the destruction of Earth and all reality. And the only way he's found to be able to accomplish that is to trick two angels that were banished to Earth into 
getting back into heaven, basically. They have to go through this the doors of this church, and they will transubstantiate and, and get back into heaven. But by doing so, they'll have defied the will of God, and if that is proven to be possible, that will eliminate all of reality. And as far as, like, Christian mythology and everything goes, Earth is the center point of all of that. So that's why I counted it. It's like all of reality is getting eliminated here, but it's all predicated on Earth. The battle is happening on Earth. There are literal battles with Jason Lee and the demons. There's battles with the angels. At a certain point, uh, Ben Affleck's character, Loki, knows what's going to happen, but he is okay with it. And uh, Matt Damon's character is less cool with it, but is too drunk to really do anything about it. And uh, a fight ensues, and then God, who has been taken out of the picture due to the machinations of Azrael, is able to to save the day when uh, the stoners, Jane, Silent Bob, and their entourage uh, bring... Uh, get them out of the hospital that they're stuck in. God is. So, so uh, there is a battle for Earth. There's a lot of bullets fired, a lot of um, fisticuffs ensue, but ultimately the, the world is saved. So there, there we go. There's our battle for Earth. And I think it's a great movie. It's a fun movie. There's a lot of good stuff in there, and I, I do enjoy the fight, and it has such personal stakes for the characters you it's it's a real character piece there is violence there is a fight but it comes down to caring about the characters and this is also a chance for me to argue that this is like the arguably the last really good kevin smith movie and uh as a former big time fan it it's it's sort of bittersweet for me to look back on it hmm so <laughs> I knew we would have some fisticuffs about these. Yeah, this I, list. I mean, I think I mean, well, what I think is I think this episode is a disaster. Uh, <laughs> but I think I could but in this case, though, what I think I think I can buy your argument that that. Yeah, the, uh, I, I mean, I'm on the fence about it being about Earth because. Christian mythology sort of places Earth as part of this, like, like there's also heaven and there's also hell, and like the like Azrael's plan is going to end everything, right? It's the end of all creation. It sort of seems like the stakes are set higher than Earth, but also you know you, f- through the lens of the Bible, like Earth is the most like the same way our definition of culture specifically uses the word human. <laughs> a lot of our religious texts seem to put a lot of importance on Earth. So yeah, I wonder I, why. I can acquiesce that, yeah, I can see that. Like, this is the final, well, it could have been the final battle for Earth, for sure. So I give you the green check mark on that, but, I mean, I thought we had specified sci-fi, and I don't know if you've, like, did you want another go to pitch Christian mythology as science fiction? Because I, I feel like those are almost diametrically opposed. <laughs> um, it's a, it's, it's, hmm. There are hard rules about it. If you look at it from a perspective that that God and angels are a form of aliens or come from another dimension, which is, I think... Which is not at all <laughs> like part of this movie or the mythology, especially the mythology. Please don't add us, Pope no, Benedict, no. whatever. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I do think that there... there so much of this stuff does tread close to the realm, of, again, probably more fantasy than sci-fi, but the two are so closely linked. I mean, you go to a bookstore, they're always right beside each other. It's nerd culture. Uh, that was 
that was where my my head was for for some of this and um i mean it's god giant uh, there's there's stuff in there that i think qualifies with the the magical abilities being otherworldly uh being uh, a level outside of our ability to understand um the the creatures that we deal with in this movie the the non-human ones are coming from a different perspective and it's about trying to to communicate with them and and uh come to terms with them at a human level i do think there is an element of of sci-fi there what's the sci uh well i mean the movie doesn't delve into the sigh of it. I will grant you that. But I do think that there is... Uh, I, come on, man. <laughs> I'm trying to argue this. Give me a second. Uh, all right. It's a tough sell, but I yeah, do think... It's it's, it's not selling. <laughs> I, uh, and look, I like Dogma, too. Um, okay, but... hold on. If you're going... Do you qualify Star Wars as sci-fi? Yes, in the sense that I would use the sci-fi label to apply to anything that is like a future setting okay like that you know with a focus on like cool like cool technologies and you know, like other planets and that kind of stuff but there Not, really like those isn't the much rules there isn't much sci to, that qualifies in in Star Wars. Like anytime you start to look at the science of it, it completely falls apart. Oh and yeah, this... it's space opera. If you want to be, yeah. you know, if you want to be a film enthusiast about it, <laughs> this but is if an somebody opera... described to you like, oh, that sci-fi movie, uh, Star Wars. Like you wouldn't go, like you wouldn't be like, what are you talking about? With dogma, I'm still, <laughs> I'm, I, I, I'm just, I'm looking for. I mean, I get the fi part. Don't at me, <laughs> Pope Benedict, whatever. Right, but like. But I'm just like, I mean, if somebody just had a laser pistol or or something. Uh, there's a holy golf don't. club. Yeah, it, but like, there's a lot of elements in there. And like the stuff you're describing about other human and stuff, I would associate with fantasy. Now, I know you can't stand fantasy, so maybe you're just not <laughs> as familiar with it as I am. <laughs> well, uh, who can be? But, you know, like like extra planar beings and celestials and like like there is a sword at some point, right? Yeah. Or, yeah, like like it's like that's all like fantasy for sure. But it's a fantasy that's also set very much on our present day earth and so it it transfers into I think a gray area. It's somewhere between sci-fi and fantasy. Fantasy is usually other worlds, usually more medieval setting. Sci-fi is usually the future. This is somewhere in between. I think a case could be made that it's like uh, a, a fan-fi. Ooh, I mean, <laughs> I uh, I understand. I, uh, boy, I mean, I it's probably not worth fighting about at this point. But <laughs> at this point. Know. It's it's on the list. Let's talk about the actual thing. Whether it uh, look, I I can't change the list now. We're already recording, so it's yep. got to be something that we we should discuss on its own merits. It's a fun movie, but, uh, you know. Yeah, the Earth could have been destroyed, but it wasn't. Um, I agree with you. I'd say it's one of the only really good movies that Kevin Smith ever made. Uh, I'm not as big a fan as you are, obviously, um, but that one was pretty solid. 
Yeah, and, and his other movies uh, up to this point, and, and even a lot of the movies after this, were very grounded in uh, reality and sort of a lower middle class reality of, of our, that anyone could experience. They were uh, It was about people just living their lives. This movie is about the destruction of the earth, the destruction of all reality, and it was a while before he, as a writer-director, went back to anything outside of the realm of the the possible outside of the realm of like a mumblecore type movie where it was just about real people and their struggles. And by that point, he was very much into a uh, altered state of mind with, uh, you know, other substances. And I don't think they have anything nearly as interesting to say as this. No, I, I, I would love it if he made a movie sober again. Yeah. I'd be very curious to see what he could do um, if there's anything left of him sober. Um, yeah, it's a fun movie. I don't think it belongs on this list, uh, but we're already way past that point. So, hey, whatever. <laughs> okay, what's your number two? My number two is Independence Day. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Which you had at your number five, I yeah. think? That's, oh, God. Independence Day is one of my, like, favorite guilty pleasures as a person. Independence Day, it's a Roland Emmerich movie. It's a, it's a sci action disaster movie i would argue it has almost as much sci as dogma does i would say maybe well i mean again the sci-fi <laughs> i'm putting into the space i know i know i'm stuff. just being a jerk at this point yeah well yeah money should not um i don't know independence day is stupid it's very raw raw america in that insufferable like hollywood michael bay kind of way it's occasionally problematic, especially by today's standards, but it's just so much fun. It's a, it's a, it's an alien invasion movie set in the current day of, of 1996, I guess, um, where like alien ships show up. We don't know what they want. It turns out they're here to blow us up. Um, they they do an initial wave of blowing cities up, and then a like a a random crew of you know just characters from uh, across the, the United States pool their resources together and have their unique skills and talents necessary to to break the code to defeat the alien invasion. It's dumb and predictable, but it's also fun and exciting and silly and just... If I ever had to define to someone, like, what a movie is, I would go to Independence Day because it's just reliably a way to kill 90 minutes and have a wonderful time. I mean, in terms of the battle for Earth, I think that's pretty clear. They, like, we see, you know, the big flying saucers and the giant death ray beams and the characters discuss, like, yeah, their plan is to burn the planet down, collect all the resources, leave it a husk and move on. In terms of the sci-fi, it's an alien invasion. They have technology we can't match. I mean, except with our MacBook, with Jeff Goldblum's <laughs> MacBook, apparently. Uh, I think that fits there, and it's just, it's, like, I always cheer at the cowboy speech, I always cheer when they win, it's just, it's so good at getting its hooks in you. I think the cast are a big part of that. Sure, I mean, Jeff Goldblum, Will Smith, what's not to like? Yeah, Bill Pullman, Judd Hirsch, I mean, as the, as Jeff Goldblum's dad, which, I don't know if you were able to tell from his really subtle performance, but did you know that character was supposed to be Jewish? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think I picked up on that. Right? Yeah. Hmm. Um, got Brent Spiner. We, like, he doesn't even get top billing, but Brent Spiner is in this movie as a dork, which is everything you need to know about his character. Yeah, it's probably, like, at this point, his most famous role outside of playing Data in Star Trek. Yeah. 
Look, they like Will Smith is a fighter pilot, so he does cool dog fighting stuff. Um, Jeff Goldblum is a nerd, so he figures out like how to hack the alien signal and figure out what they're up to and hack the mothership. Bill Pullman is the president, so he you know fights for America. The like, like there's no deep character motivations here. There's oh, Randy Quaid as the drunk, <laughs> like as the drunk who was abducted by aliens a long time ago and is finally proven right. But he steps up like he's a crop duster, right? So he, right. he steps up. He tries to lay off the sauce so he can fight in the final battle, <laughs> like because <laughs> like cause he wants to like be good for his kids and stuff. It's so like I want to say cheesy, but like spray on cheese, like cheap <laughs> artificial spray on cheese. But I love it, and I keep saying that, and I keep trying to explain why, and I don't think I can communicate why. I just have such a great time with this movie. You obviously like it less than I do. You had it at your number five. What's up with that? <laughs> Look, it's got great space battles. It's got great destruction effects. Uh, I just, last time I saw it, I went in really, like, ready to rah-rah and, and be, and, and, like, enjoy the whole thing. And I just could not get into it. It's it's so hollow. Like, everything that's good about it is those performances. If if you cast anyone else in the roles, it's just the beest of B-movies. Like, B-movie at best. And so, like, the stakes are the world. It's so hard to... to I, like I keep saying, it's hard to care about that, and those guys make you care, and it's like their fight to, to save the world it makes you invested in it, but uh, like, it's just, it's really hard to, to, once you're watching it with any sort of critical eye, it's really hard to, to care. I think beyond. Oh yeah, if, the if you're going in for film, you're yeah, you're going to be furious. I agree with you on that. I do feel like the stakes are better presented, frankly. I I think the key is that, like in J.J. Star Trek, it's all or nothing. Like, like he drops the mining beam, yeah, and San Francisco gets kind of messed up. But it's like, he's either going to drop the bomb or he's not. In this, we get to see Earth in the process of getting destroyed, right? Like, we see the ruins of New York and the decapitated Statue of Liberty. Like, we see, like, like all that really, like, it feels bad to look at that. Like, to look at the devastation and the destruction and the desperation I feel like that adds to it. Like you're like it's not just you're gonna it's not you're not just gonna Death Star Alderan, right? One minute it's there, one minute it's gone. Right. It's it's the gradual, like like they can't be stopped, they're just working their way through. Like it's oh, it works so well to have the shots of the giant flying saucers like slowly settling over their targets. It's such a great like film filmographer, photographer, one of those like a great cinematographer. Tool the, cinematographer's tool. To, to like to, to build tension like that I, th- I feel like that helps add to the stakes more than some of our earlier stuff that's fair um I just don't uh, ultimately I just don't like the movie as much so that's that's why it didn't uh rank higher but I it's uh, it did make the list because it, you can't deny that it's really great at doing the battle for earth yeah, and I, I did use the word guilty pleasure. Like, I don't genuinely think this is one of the best movies of all time or something. I just, it's just a consistent source of, like, I loved it when it came out in 1996, and I love it. And Well, it was 2020, the last time I watched it, but I still love it. Um, and it's just, it's so heroic. It's so goddamn heroic. <laughs> uh, it, by the way, not 
I just want to make sure, like, we don't, I just want to make sure we focus that we don't talk about it. It does have a sequel, which does not deserve to the light of day. Do not waste your time. All right. Good heavens. But yeah, Independence didn't, Day. Didn't end up seeing the sequel, so I can't even speak to that one. Don't you worry about it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to my number one, which I am pretty sure you won't have as hard a time with as my two and three. Do we have the same number one? Uh, I I don't know. Let's find out. Mine is Galactus. Oh, we don't have the same number one. But I see where you're... But yeah, Galactus is... that. That's a pretty Earth-level threat. All right, all right. So uh, Galactus was introduced in uh, Fantastic Four comic early days during the the wonderful run by Stanley and Jack Kirby. I think it was like 111 issues that they did together. It's the magnum opus of the Marvel Universe, and especially those early days where they, you know, every few issues of that run, they introduced some amazing concept, including in that original Galactus story, the Watcher, who is the star of the current Marvel TV series, What If? But Galactus was the threat that he came to watch. It's it, He... Galactus is like an elemental force that travels the galaxy, travels the universe even, destroying planets, eating them to survive. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, he, he's he's like something like a goat just grazing on a field. Like if he wasn't there, the field would get overgrown and, and that would be bad. So he goes through space and destroys planets and eats them. And, and if there are people on the planet, so be it. They just get lost in the destruction of the planet. And in that first appearance, he gets... Uh, sort of tricked into leaving by Reed Richards. But I'm going to focus specifically on issue 243, and uh, it bleeds a little bit into the issue before and the issue after. And that was written and drawn by John Byrne, a uh, rare double threat. And he he is, after uh, Lee and Kirby, I would argue he's like the most important creator who's ever worked on Fantastic Four. And this storyline is so good. And it's something that I read on a CD-ROM back in the late 90s, early 2000s, that Marvel released these interactive CD-ROMs, and it would be uh, a version of the comic book, and you would get to read the story. There was a narrator that would describe it. There was all sorts of bios for characters and stuff. I have a real nostalgic love for this story. And I reread it in preparation for this, and I still love it. It's such a great piece of art, drawn, written. It's fantastic. Galactus comes back to Earth. He is is tired and low energy, and he needs to eat something in order to survive. And he has this sort of grudging respect for Reed Richards, but he's like, I, I this is the closest thing. This has the energy I need to eat. I'm sorry. I got to do this. And there's a big fight involving the Fantastic Four and the Avengers. There's cool things that you hadn't seen before in a comic book, like Doctor Strange using his power to make Galactus see and hear the voices of every life he's wiped out. And it it's like the anguish of it is so powerful to him. He staggers and then the thing knocks him to the ground. Galactus falls over. It's like a double page spread where he just falls back and crashes through a Manhattan building. It's a great fight. And eventually Reed is able to talk him out of doing it. And they find another solution to get him energy. They, they find a new Herald for him and he, they leave to go 
find a, a more suitable planet. But that fight and the and and Reed arguing to save him when they have a chance to kill him and wipe this threat to the galaxy out of off of the plane of existence, he can't bring himself to do it and he convinces the other superheroes to let him live and it's it's just a great read all the way through great action and great dialogue great stakes where everyone's personality is on display and you get to understand the motivations of why everyone's doing everything and i think that might play into why i uh, can feel some sort of respect for the Borg and and see them as a culture. But again, a conversation for another time. Great yeah. piece of art and well worth tracking down. I I mean I agree a hundred percent with pretty much everything you've said. No, I had do agree one hundred percent with everything you've said. I will add that in my own experience, I mean. I love the Galactus st- stuff. I love the Silver Surfer stuff. I do feel like Galactus was ill-served by the artists of his time who put this elemental force of nature in a purple jumpsuit. Hey, um, at least in at, in this iteration, he has pants, which is not what he had in the original Jack Kirby drawings. Yeah, and I'm afraid to complain about it because then in like the, not the crappiest, but the second crappiest Fantastic Four movie that just made him like a cloud of insects or whatever. Yeah, like, that so- comes, comes from the Ultimate Comics where that's how they do, decided to depict him. Yeah. And I get why they did that, but it's not as fun as, as someone you can talk to and someone who has a... A voice, like no, it definitely can... needs to be a person. Just as a yeah. lot of purple, is I mean, <laughs> and he has a G on his belt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you know whose belt it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 what I'm getting at is that it's difficult to take the classic comics Galactus seriously as a villain in an era where so much is silly. Even that, like that, breaks the mold. I thought. But that's surface level stuff. That's judging a supernatural galactic entity by its cover. Uh, the act- <laughs> I, I agree with you. The actual story, the actual battle, the actual stakes, and the re- like everything about it is that's is so good. Yeah. So that that was something that I that really struck me as as a nifty change of pace for a superhero comic book. And it was just such a good like there's it's so much built up to it and so much cool stuff happened. Like that was a great climax. It was a great it was a great battle. It was a great sci fi battle for Earth. Yeah, and it's the sort of thing that nowadays would have been a twelve issue event and would have crossed over into every book. But here it's just John Byrne writing three issues, writing and drawing three issues, and most of the Marvel universe pops up in the, the story to have an appearance and, and it's just like just doing business. This is what I need for the story. So this is the characters that are showing up. It's great. Okay, what's your number one? My number one, um, definitely leaning into the specifics of what we said our list was going to be, the, the sci-fi battle for Earth. My favorite sci-fi battle for Earth has to be Priority Earth, the last mission of Mass Effect 3. Ah, okay. I, I think is by far the coolest battle for Earth. That there's ever going to be. It's. I mean, we've talked about Mass Effect a hundred times in this podcast. Trilogy of games, big on story, big on characters, big on decisions. The choices you make cascade throughout all three and dramatically affect where you end up. 
Uh, Mass Effect 3 came out in March 2012. Uh, the last two games, you've been on the Galaxy's case that the Reapers are coming. The Reapers are coming. They're these big robot Lovecraftian monsters that every 50,000 years they show up and cleanse all organic life in the universe. At the start of Mass Effect 3, no one's listened to you. It's too late. They're here. They're on Earth and you barely escape. And you spend the rest of the game like, well, I just I want to get back to Earth. I got to be you know, the fight on Earth, but first I got to do this thing, like because I'm responsible for the whole galaxy. It's not just about Earth. And throughout this whole game, you're like, I mean, really, it's the three games. Everything you've done across like what is it, like 120 hours of story contributed to it. And then finally, at the end of this game, you basically have it where the Reapers, in addition to blowing up Earth, they've also moved this MacGuffin. To Earth, it's never really explained why. It's it's because of what we mentioned before, where Earth is always the center of everything. Um, but the only way to save the galaxy is going to be to get to Earth, and so like everyone left in the galaxy gets together and comes to Earth. And there's two parts to this. Like the first part is definitely the fleets arrive cutscene, which is like three or four minutes. It's it's a cool space battle. It makes the Battle of Endor look like a little skirmish where you know all the ships show up and they play the the, the video game like the theme music, but big on horns and strings, and it's very dramatic. And again, because your ch- your choices affect things. There's a lot of different versions of this cutscene, so it really does kind of reflect how well you did. Like if you saved the Destiny Ascension, like the, the, this big alien starship in Mass Effect One, it's in this cutscene, and it does like a cool Battlestar Galactica smash zoom to show like, yep, they're there, they're there too. And everyone comes together, and there's this great space battle. It's very cool, but then you get into the ground war, which is the part of the game that you play. Because it's a game where you play a person, not a spaceship. And the ground war is just... Again, I think it's that desperation I was talking about from Independence Day. Like, you start... Like, you land on Earth. You land on the bank of the Thames. And it's messed up. Like, London has been, you know, blown up and burnt to the ground. And there's the ruins of Big Ben. And you fight your way through the UK, through these shattered ruins. And all your conversations with the characters are like... Basically, it's, holy shit, like, we did the best we could, but there's almost no chance any of us are making it out of this, and it's, you know, it's been an honor to serve you, sir, but holy crap. I mean, I, you know, the fate of all organic life in the galaxy is at stake, I mean, so Earth is, like, Earth is definitely, get, like, it's <laughs> pounded no matter what you do, but if you can just, like, just keep doing that one more thing, maybe we can get to the MacGuffin and stop the Reapers, and the desperation of it... I just, it's so epic. Maybe in the way that like Battletech was, with that you know, those 30 years of writing that got to this final battle, like Mass Effect, all, everything you've been doing from that first battle on Eden Prime, like to protect the human race and to fight the Reapers is finally coming to a head. And even if you win, it's almost like it's too late, but at least you can save something. And that is just so cool. All right, that is a very I, I can't argue with it. It's it's I uh, I think part of the reason it didn't end up on my list is cuz I have played Mass Effect 3 as much as you have and my reasoning for that is that I uh I the my my favorite part of the Mass Effect trilogy is the idea of the your choices continuing from game to game and the consequences of that. And by the time you get to the final battle, you're like, well those 
doesn't matter what my choices are, this series is over at the end of this game. So whatever happens, that's it. And so once I hit the end, maybe there's some melancholy, maybe there's some like feeling of like, well, I'll, I'll finish this, but this isn't what I'm playing the games for. It's the decisions leading up to this that really are, are the driving force for me. So uh, It's the journey, not the destination. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also, like you said, the stakes are so much bigger than Earth, but Earth is the focal point. Not, I'm not going to begrudge you having that on your, your list. Mm. Uh, it just, it's... It's so much bigger than Earth, and uh, Earth is sort of coincidental to the final fight. Well, I, I like I do think it's it should have been coincidental to the <laughs> final fight, but the writers and I do take this as a knock against Mass Effect. There's no reason that battle should have. I mean, I guess it had to be because Earth is our home planet and all that jazz. But yeah, it should like it made it would have made more sense if it wasn't Earth. Earth was in danger and you should have saved it, but the final battle shouldn't have been there. It was for dramatic purposes. It doesn't make sense. It's kind of like a writer's cop-out. Um, but I think it can be done really well. It can be done where it's a lot of fun. And some, not all, but some of the things on both our lists here uh, show some examples of that. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm, I, I, I'm going to have to start an apology letter for you when this is over. Uh, oh, yeah, I can already me? tell. Yeah, right. Borg apologist and, and dogma, sci-fi battle for Earth. I mean, you went for dogma. And your Christian mythology, that's science fiction. That's not going to generate any letters. All right, well, we'll see what the letters about this say. And uh, maybe the end of the show. Speaking of letters, if you had any questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, vicious attacks, that sort of thing, I guess we've earned them this time around. Um, all kinds of ways that you can get a hold of us. Graham, what's our, what's our contact information for these no doubt furious people? Please email us at geektop5 at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash geektop5, and we're on Twitter at geektop5. You can also leave comments on our website, geektop5.com, and you can definitely leave reviews on any of your podcatchers of choice from uh, Apple Podcasts all the way to, to Spotify, anything. Just wherever you can find us, leave us a little review or a favorite or whatever you got. Those reviews, by the way, especially important. It's, it's a really good metric for us to be able to figure out where we're being listened to, what's being listened to. That means a lot. You know, just take a little bit of time out of your day. It would make a big difference for us. Thank you so much uh, for everything you can do to submit in that regard. Uh, while we're giving out thanks, always, of course, want to give some thanks to Oliver Wickham, the guy behind our theme song. Please check him out on Spotify. He's a music producer. He's got all kinds of cool stuff up there to listen to. Dude is super talented. And uh, again, thank you for tuning in. We love doing this with you. We love the, uh, just hearing from you. <laughs> we'll see in this case. But in general, we love hearing from you. We love having the chance to do this for you. Uh, a bunch of cool stuff on those lists. Plenty, especially if you're counting all of Babylon 5. That's plenty of stuff to keep you busy until we get a chance to do this again. Until then, I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And this has been Geek Top 5. We'll talk to you again next week. Probably, if we don't get canceled. <laughs>